Okay, Jesse, last week's Halloween case really hit a nerve. What's the story this time around? The Wedbys seemed like the classic all-American family. Hardworking husband, beautiful mother, a sweet older brother, and an adorable baby girl with Down syndrome. Lisa, the mother, would even be written up in an award-winning article about the challenges and rewards of raising a special needs child. But behind closed doors, they were far from what they seemed. Infidelity, manipulation, and gross betrayals would culminate in the stabbing of an innocent person while they slept in their own bed. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about lost trust, relationship, rust, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, pretty please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head right on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. This week, we are so excited to shout out an amazing new set of patrons. Sandy J, Victoria Z, and Sarah D, Angelina C, Maria D, and Sarah A, Katie K, Sarah H, and Megan K. That's awesome. Thank you guys for joining us. Also, thank you to our awesome group of patrons who joined us last night on the Paint and Sip. It was so much fun. It was the best. It really was. I forgot how soothing painting is. Just the act of doing it is so soothing. And we had a really fun conversation while we were doing it. Big thanks to Amanda, our patron, who is a art teacher, painting teacher, and she instructed and designed the whole canvas. So we can't thank you enough for that. Amanda and everyone who joined, I think we're going to be setting up another one for the spring. And we might open that one up to more people or different levels of Patreon. So get on in on the Patreon and I think we might open up the next one to all levels. I think that'd be a good idea. Yeah, I think it'd be super fun because it was great. Well, as this episode comes out, I will be celebrating Alden's birthday. This comes out on my daughter's fifth birthday, but it is also three days away from my 10th wedding anniversary. Insane. I know. So I was like considering some big cases for around my anniversary because for some reason, when I think about love, I think about love murder. (laughs) And we were going to do Betty Broderick, but then Andy was like, wait until I'm with you. So I think we're going to try to do that later this month when we are together for Thanksgiving. So get excited because I know so many of you guys have recommended that case to me and it is the archetypical love murder. But for today, I wanted to give you guys something that seems on the outset like potentially a typical love murder and then has a twist. And I'm not going to tell you anything else, Andy. So let's get into it. Let's do it. For the first time in a long time, Rob Wedby was having a very good night. It was a cool early June night in 1994, and he had just played a game of softball with his friends. He had come home to a bucket of fried chicken, 
And then he had read books and played with his beloved daughter, Brittany, until she fell into a deep, deep sleep. He had planned on finishing up some work when his beautiful wife, Lisa, seduced him into bed wearing a red silky negligee. Whoa. <laughs> it's a night. That is a night, sir. No special occasion. No special occasion. All right. Yeah. So it had been a really long time since the two of them had been on the same page and had been like having some good, sexy, easy times. The problems in the relationship had begun after Brittany had been born. Brittany had Down syndrome as well as some other serious medical conditions. She had fought through multiple surgeries and tremendous hardships by the tender age of only four years old. Oh, my God. Did they say what other type of... Um... Yeah, we'll go into exactly what happened. But by this point at four, she had already had open heart surgery and she had had brain surgery. This is a lot of stress. Like poor, sweet, brave Brittany had been, her body had been through this stress. And as any parent can imagine, having your child having to undergo those serious operations and also just being concerned about their quality of life and their care as they age constantly would stress even the strongest of marriages. So definitely the fractures in this relationship started when they had some differing opinions about Britney's care and I'm sure just also stress in general. But on a night like tonight, a perfect early summer night in Tennessee when sex and love and familial comfort seemed not just possible, but perhaps a given, Rob Wedby dared to dream again, dared to dream that his family could be whole and his relationship with Lisa could continue the way it should be in love and in partnership. He fell into a hazy, happy sleep, but was woken suddenly sometime after midnight. Lisa's side of the bed was empty. And before he even opened his eyes, he could smell or sense something. It smelled like cigarette smoke when neither he nor Lisa smoked. And then body odor. So he's smelling something. And then he opens his eyes. And the room was completely dark. There was some blinds that were slightly open and a streetlight was outside. So he could kind of see in this very dim light yeah. that there was some sort of movement. And before he could realize exactly what was going on coming out of this sleep, all of a sudden it came into focus that there was a man standing above him slashing a gigantic knife down to his face. What? Yeah, so Rob did not have any time to process what was going on or try to understand who was attacking him. He had just enough time to instinctively throw his arms in front of his face and head, of course, and that did deflect the giant blade that the killer was wheeling. So instead of hitting him in the neck or chest area, the blade ended up hitting him in the ear and basically severing his ear from his body. Oh, my God. And it also at that point nicked the side of his throat, but thankfully did not hit any major arteries uh. in his neck at that point. So adrenaline is pouring through Rob's body at this point, and he realizes with absolute clarity that this man is going to kill him. This man is here to kill him. Nobody's in your bedroom with a knife if they're not here to finish your life. No, and where's his wife? That's what he is thinking about. So he's like 
at first just trying to survive. So he's grappling with this shadowy figure whose face was covered with a nylon stocking mask with those creepy like pantyhose masks. And he's shouting for Lisa to call 911. And then he's like, wait, where is Lisa? Was I sleeping? Did Lisa get up? Was she in another room? And this person attacked and killed her first. And then he's thinking about Brittany. He doesn't know if Brittany's safe. Brittany's in the home. They had an older son named Justin who was actually at his grandparents that night. So Justin wasn't home, but Brittany's in the house. So now he's thinking, did something happen to my wife? And where is my daughter? Is she safe? Does this intruder even know we have a daughter? He doesn't know how they were targeted. But he continues to shout, call 911, as he was fighting off his attacker. And just in case Lisa was still in the home and could get to a phone. But when he doesn't hear anything, he realizes he's on his own. And he doesn't know what happened to his wife. So the attacker did have the element of surprise, but Rob is very strong. He's older now at this point, but in his youth, he was a competitive power lifter. He was very athletic. And it seems like this guy who's attacking him, and it definitely seems like a man, is not as athletic. So with the adrenaline, he's kind of managing to overpower him a little bit. So the guy is slicing him essentially like they're struggling to get the knife and he's getting cuts on his torso and his legs at that point and he managed to basically throw the attacker down and get on top of him and he has him he has his hands but he cannot figure out how he can get to the phone while also holding both of his hands so he stops attacking him with the knife yeah, yeah. so he manages to get the attacker's like wrists in one hand and like stretch his arm out to reach for the cordless phone that was by the bedside and pull the antenna out with his teeth. And he starts dialing and he realizes the phone is dead. Oh my God, stop. So this was like fully planned. This was fully planned. He has no way of calling for help. Is he starting to realize that or no? He is just panicking at this point. And so during this one moment where he's fighting to get the phone, the attacker managed to essentially wiggle out of his grip because he was holding both of the guy's hands with one hand. And he used that momentary distraction of him thinking, oh, shit, my phone's dead to get the knife back. And he started slashing at Rob again. And so Rob obviously wanted it to stop. So he grabbed the knife, but he grabbed it like on the blade side. And when the attacker realized that it was facing his hand, he like twisted it and dug it in. So the knife went all the way down to the bone of Rob's hand. Oh God. Yeah. So now he's in tremendous amounts of pain. There's blood and sweat everywhere. He has no idea who this person is. He doesn't know if his family's safe, but he is just now trying to manage to fight him off enough that he can maybe get outside and run to get help because he has neighbors close by. This is a suburban neighborhood. He thinks if he can get out the door, maybe he can alert his neighbors to what's going on. And while he is fighting for his life, all of a sudden he sees the silhouette of what he thinks is hopefully his wife in the doorway. It looks like Lisa is standing there. She's not saying anything, but she's holding an aluminum bat. So she's like, oh, thank God. What? Yeah, like she's like there with the bat. He's like, there's my avenging angel. She's gonna 
come in with this bat and fight off my attacker? Or was she? Because Lisa didn't move as Rob screamed for her to turn on the light to call 911. And then his attacker screamed, you've got to do it. Do it now. So how the hell did a nice guy like Rob Wedby find himself here in his own bedroom being attacked by a man with a pantyhose mask? Was this attacker in cahoots with Lisa? Was that silhouette of what he thought was maybe Lisa, even Lisa? We are going to be discussing all of this and more on today's totally sinister episode of Love Murder. Whoa. Yeah. So I don't want to give anything away because that was obviously a very comprehensive introduction today. Usually I only give you guys a tease and that was a lot more of the action. You gave us the full Monty. Well, almost the full Monty. (laughs) Almost the full Monty. I'm going to actually do my sources at the end because they, they might hint to where we stand with this case too. So let's go back in time and talk about Rob and Lisa some 15 years before this deadly night. In 1979, Lisa and Rob met cute while they were out driving with their respective friends. I feel like I don't know if teenagers still do this. It all feels very American graffiti to me, but apparently... 19-year-old Rob was driving a black T-top Corvette near University of Tennessee in Knoxville when two cute girls in a little blue Triumph TR6 flagged the guys down, he was with a friend, and told them to pull over. So basically, it's like cute girls on the side of the road are like, hey, what's up? And they just like pulled over to chat. Yeah, that's (laughs) called like hitchhiking and it's dangerous. (laughs) Like, how do you know who's in a car? I don't know, but this is crazy to me too, because essentially they pulled over and Rob said that beautiful blonde 17-year-old Lisa jumped out of the passenger side of the other car and said, I get the driver. And then they basically switched. Like his friend got into the car with her friend and Lisa got into the car with Rob and they just like drove off. Andy doesn't understand the the mechanics of 1979 dating. One of the number one like red flags of like people in cars, like you don't get into the car with a stranger ever. (laughs) Well, apparently you do if he's a cute 19 year old who's driving a T-top Corvette. I don't even know what they look like, but it sounds sexy. I know exactly what those are. Are they sexy? Yeah. (laughs) So... Conversation between the two of them was pretty easy right from the beginning. Rob was a sophomore at UT. He was athletic. He's very hardworking. He's super family oriented. While he was in school, he was also working at his parents' insurance company while he was earning his degree. And Lisa would have certainly noticed his beautiful blue eyes. He had a very muscular physique because this was the time in life that he was a competitive power lifter. And for her part, Lisa had a great figure. She was that type of body type that manages to somehow be like thin, but still have curves. She had like the big blonde hair of the era. And she was also athletic. She ran varsity track. So she was a senior in high school. He's a sophomore in college at this point. Okay. By the time he dropped her off and she slid him her phone number, they were both a little smitten. There was a zing going on. There was some chemistry there. So he looked down at the paper and it said, call me. And then she wrote her name, which was Lisa Outlaw. Excuse me? Outlaw is her real last name. Oh, wow. You can't make this shit up. We were talking about, I think, on a previous episode about like what your porn name would be. Yeah. And I was saying that 
mine was like Alden Western or Savaya Western, and that would only be a porn name in like the old West. Yeah, you and Lisa both. <laughs> but me and Lisa, we would be. <laughs> mine could give that tone too. I feel like Rosewood as the last name. Yes. Maybe we're just all out there on the frontier trying to make it in, you know, one of those saloons that we do a little dance and take the customers upstairs for a nickel. Yeah. And hopefully they're too drunk that like you don't have to do anything. <laughs> we're getting very Deadwood up in here. <laughs> in any case, Lisa's last name may be a bit of foreshadowing, but maybe not. We'll find out. The couple began dating and it seemed like they made a really cute couple, at least from the outside. They were even described as Ken and Barbie from their friends. And this is well before everyone was a Ken and a Barbie because of the recent movie. Or because of the killers. Or because of the killers. <laughs> yes. I would definitely say that um, they weren't the original true crime Barbie and Ken over here. We'd have to give that one to those creepy Canadians. Yeah. Oh, don't you know. <laughs> So Lisa would go and cheer Rob on at his powerlifting competitions, and he would attend her track meets. Rob was very physically attracted to Lisa. He found that he really enjoyed being around her. Their friend groups were very compatible, which I feel like is way more important when you're like 17 and 19 to have your friend groups mesh. I feel like also back in the day, too, it was a little bit more important because there weren't as many different means of community and network, whereas now mm -hmm. like... You can have friends from all over or you can have friends online or you can have gaming friends. Like back then, I feel like it was your crew. That was it. Exactly. And they became a pretty tight crew. In fact, one of Rob's very best friends for his entire life, he met through double dating with one of Lisa's friends. Okay. So they were a tight click right away. The only red flag Rob had was that Lisa always seemed to have a lot of drama in her life. She's a drama llama. She is a drama llama. I think I wrote in the notes, drama llama. Lisa didn't seem to get along very well with her mother. She had told Rob that she was verbally and physically abused. We have not checked out those allegations. So it's just an allegation. Lisa also told Rob that her brother had once attacked her father with a butcher knife. None of these claims, again, were verified. But of course, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Who knows what happens behind closed doors? For his part, Rob didn't really know what to believe because he had met Lisa's family. And while he didn't particularly get along with her mother, he loved her dad. Her dad was a very stoic, very calm, great guy. So it just seemed a little crazy that all of this circus was going on behind closed doors to Rob. What was her mom like? I would say like maybe a little materialistic. Like she had, at one point, Lisa says that she had like talked to her about marrying a rich man and being taken care of. So just different values. Just different values. And I think that Rob also did not really know what dysfunction looked like or how to spot it because his family was very warm, very close, very calm. It's like the type of family where nobody like raises their voice all the time and they work through issues. It's like more like, like my in-laws who are really nice, <laughs> you know? Just like warm and nice and they decorate the house at Christmas. <laughs> they come and decorate your house. They come and decorate my house at Christmas, which is great. Yeah. So he was just like, well, maybe it is that way. I don't know. But I love her. It just seems like there was always a lot going on. And he witnessed it firsthand after they had been dating, I think, a few weeks. Rob had had what it sounds like almost like a childhood girlfriend. Like they had met at 
in Florida when they were both on vacation. And he had stayed in touch with this girl for years and years, but they were always long distance. And by the time they both went to college, it was kind of like, we can't really date each other. We have to move on. We're never in the same place. She was like somewhere between a childhood friend and an ex-girlfriend. And she had made plans to make a visit to Knoxville to see him, but to see other people before he started dating Lisa. So when she was coming, this other girl, Rob was like, hey, just a heads up. I mean, I see my friend who I did kind of date, who's a girl, but she knows I'm dating somebody. I just still want to get together with her and have lunch and hang out. I just wanted to be honest with you and upfront. And Lisa apparently totally lost it. She completely lost it on him for hanging out with his ex-girlfriend and she didn't believe that it was platonic. And she was screaming at him, demanded he take her home, yelled at him in the yard. She really like put on a, a scene. And by the time she slammed the door, he was like, okay, we're done. That's insane. I've never seen an adult put on a temper tantrum like that. And so that weekend, she tried to call him a bunch to beg him to take her back and that it's okay if he saw this other girl and she had overreacted. But he was like, I don't know. I think I'm just going to let this one go. It seems like a lot. And later on, I think it was on Monday after the weekend, he got a call from his really good friend who was dating her friend. And he said, I think that you need to reach out to Lisa because she has slit her wrists. So Rob was, of course, upset. He's like, do I need to go to the hospital? Where is she? And he said, no, she's still, she's at home. It wasn't bad enough that she needed to go to the hospital. So she's, I think, okay. She just is not mentally very well right now. So Rob went to her and they definitely were superficial marks. So it seemed less of a suicide attempt and more of a cry for help, a cry for attention. And that was a cry that Rob answered. He also struck me as the type of guy who liked to be needed, who felt good being a safe haven and a hero. And I think that's how Lisa made him feel when he came back to be with her after she cut her wrists. She was like, I have had such a chaotic upbringing and nobody really knows me and I don't trust anyone and no one cares for me the way you do. And I love you so much and no one's ever seen me this way. And I realized that I overreacted and this was extreme, but I just was feeling like I could not live without you. And at that point, Rob's dad was like, son, you're 19 years old. This is way too much. This is a lot to put on you right now at this age and at this stage of you guys dating, you should maybe reconsider whether you want to get serious with this person. But Rob was in love with Lisa. Yeah. Did he like double down? He doubled down. They ended up dating for a couple more years. By the time Rob was 21, he had dropped out of University of Tennessee to work as a full-time insurance agent at his family's company with the goal to continue building the business and take it over someday. And business was booming. So 19-year-old Lisa had even started working for the Wedbees as well. So she started in administrative type stuff. And then she was working to get licensed to sell automotive and home insurance. And it really seemed like they were a good team. I mean, they're, she's there working alongside him and his parents. The only sticking point in the relationship was when they were going to get married. They both decided that that was their person that marriage and children were in the future for them. So young. 
yeah, 19 and 21. So Rob was like, let's give it some time. Let's wait till we're established. Let's wait till I can afford a house and we can be completely independent. And we're both a little more ahead in our careers. And she wanted to get married sooner rather than later. Well, that conversation became a moot point in 1981 when Lisa called Rob in a panic because she was pregnant. Yes, she was preggers. Rob, of course, being Rob, felt like the right thing to do was to get married. Good guy. Yeah, he knew he wasn't quite ready, but they had talked about it. And also, it seems like both sets of parents were fairly religious. So he was kind of worried about what the parents were going to think when they found out. So he kind of wanted to get engaged first and then be like, surprise, we're also pregnant. Yeah, I guess if you're just fairly religious, that one could like accidentally slipped in. (laughs) It slipped in. So he's like, this is the right thing to do. So he doesn't tell Lisa right away. He's just like, don't worry. You're going to figure this out. We're going to have this baby. We're going to be a family. Just leave it to me. And he immediately went out to the mall because it's 1981 and bought an engagement ring. And he went to Lisa's father to ask him for permission. And this was another little red flag was that when he asked Mr. Outlaw for Lisa's hand in marriage, Mr. Outlaw said, are you sure? Are you really sure? (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Dad. He's like, that's kind of weird that the dad is asking me if I I really want to do this in kind of a warning fashion. And he said, yes, I love Lisa. And he said, well, I could not have imagined a better son-in-law. I think you're great. He's already working in a business he's going to someday own. He seemed like a really responsible kid. So he's like, you guys are young, but hey, maybe you can settle my wild daughter down then. So Rob was like, okay. And then he went to his parents and said, I've decided I'm proposing to Lisa. And they were a little concerned. His mother said that she thought they were too young, but she also said, but we were too young. Her and her husband had been together since they were teenagers as well. So She said, okay, well, if you're really sure, and this is always a tricky thing for parents because you can't say, oh, no, don't marry her because then he does it anyway. And if he's married to her forever, you set yourself up for failure as a family. Yeah. Rob ended up proposing. Lisa was completely delighted. Almost immediately, she began wedding planning. Within a couple months, a date had been set. A dress was picked out and a deposit was put down. The invitation list was drawn up. Everything was getting ready to go very, very quickly. And they hadn't talked about, though, the baby. When is the baby coming? What's going on with the baby? And so is she not even pregnant? After a couple months, while they're like in full (sighs) wedding planning, Rob's kind of like, hey, by the way, we have to talk about the baby factoring into all of these wedding plans and when we're going to tell our parents. And she was like, oh, You know, with all the stuff going on, it completely slipped my mind. I'm not pregnant. It was just an accident. I just must have missed a period. And he's like, well, I thought you said you were sure. And she was like, yeah, I was sure I was really, really late. Oh, my God. But the thing is funny is that this wasn't even really a red flag to Rob. He was just so relieved that he wasn't going to become a dad within a few months. He was just like, oh. I mean, I guess. Yeah, but it's just because it's relative because he thought he was going to be a dad because of a lie. And then he was all caught up in the wedding planning that he like that that became the default stress after he found out he wasn't going to be a daddy. 
Yeah, and it doesn't seem like he really, really considered calling the wedding off at that point. I don't know if it was because the plans were already in motion, they had already told everyone, whoa, or if things had been going well, because things had been going well. When Lisa got into the wedding planning and getting excited about the wedding, she seemed really stable and she was really calm and happy. So their relationship was actually the best it had ever been at that point. So he's like, oh, maybe this is all going to work out. So he was excited and happy to go through with it, except for the morning of the wedding. Okay, but she like lied to him about the biggest thing you could lie about for months. Also, how do you just forget to tell somebody that you finally got your period? Yeah, that's wild. Also, then like every month you would have your period. Well, it was about two months after she told him that she said, oh, actually, I'm not pregnant. So she made it sound kind of like she missed a period. Oh my God. Okay. So red flags are flying, babe. Red flags are flying. And another red flag is that his gut instinct on the morning of the wedding was to run. And I think that everybody says, oh, cold feet is totally natural. Every person feels that way. And I'm here to tell you guys that's not true. No. I didn't have any jitters whatsoever. I wasn't nervous about anything. I also think eloping helps because you're not worried about how the day is going. Yeah, I was just going to say that when you elope, you have so many less variables to worry about. And if you don't like being the center of attention or like around a bunch of people or worrying about family drama. Yep. You could misconstrue like nerves about that with nerves about marrying the person, you know? So I think when you do have a big wedding, it's so much harder to distinguish what you're nervous about. Exactly, exactly. But if there's something inside of you that's like, I shouldn't be getting married, not like, oh, I hope Aunt Sally doesn't throw down with Aunt Donna. Sally and Donna are always causing trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then there's a problem. There's something inside of you that's screaming, no. Yes. Yeah. But nonetheless, he went down that aisle and he stood and watched Lisa Outlaw become Lisa Wedby on June 12th of 1982. So life progressed. They worked together at the agency. They bought a beautiful home. And in April of 1986, they had their first child, a baby boy named Justin. And it seems like the family was extremely happy. I saw some home videos on an episode of American Monster, which I will link to in the show notes and tell you guys about at the end. It seemed like Justin was a very easy baby who grew into a cute and curious toddler. They said he was easy to travel with. It sounds like their families had vacation homes in Gatlinburg and also in Florida. Okay, cool. So they often would just throw him in the car and go for family trips. He apparently loved to swim. They have him like in the pool in these home videos. And it really did seem like they were the perfect upwardly mobile family. Like they were just going places and happy together. In the fall of 1989, the Wedbys found out they were expecting again, and they were delighted. On an icy cold morning in March of 1990, sweet Brittany Alice came into the world. Brittany actually has the same birthday as Gus, March 7th. Oh, no way. Yep. I guess just 31 years ahead. <laughs> so Rob and Lisa were very happy at Brittany's birth. However, over the next few moments, days, months, there were going to be hairline fractures that it would eventually splinter and break this once happy marriage. A few hours after Brittany was born, a nurse noticed that Brittany seemed a little different and they brought a doctor in and the doctor told the Wedbees that they suspected that Brittany had Down syndrome 
and they needed to perform some genetic testing to confirm. Now, Rob is taking it like a normal parent would, which is, well, what does this mean for her future? What does this mean for her care? What can I do for my child? The normal things you would think when you're finding out about something that you didn't think about as a reality. This wasn't something they had prepared and planned for, and so they had any idea of what it was going to look like to love and care for Brittany. But Lisa just completely went hysterical. I mean, she went screaming, yelling, turned to Rob and said more than once, how do we get out of this? Whoa. Rob was really sickened at that point. He had one of his parents in the room and Lisa's dad was there as well when they got this news because they had come to see the baby. Okay. And he said to her, Lisa, I don't think this is something we can or should get out of. This isn't something you get out of. It's our child. And when he said that to her, she got even more angry and she started cursing him out essentially to the point where her father was like, you guys leave, like get out of the room and I will try to calm my daughter down. She had just given birth hours before. And so he walks out in the hall and the doctor had heard Lisa screaming. So the doctor came over and was like, it's going to be okay. People with Down syndrome live wonderful lives. She's going to be capable of so much. You are going to take such great care of your daughter. She's going to be a happy person that's capable of accepting and giving love. Your wife's reaction is very strong, so strong that we're going to keep her in the hospital, I think, a little longer than normal. I think that's good. I mean, obviously, like, those reactions are not abnormal. That's what he was saying. He was like, this is an outsized reaction. Obviously, she's very uh, intense in how she expresses herself. But the doctor was like, everyone handles this type of diagnosis differently. And she literally just gave birth. She just gave birth. So she's postpartum. Her hormones are all screwed up. She's probably scared. So Rob was trying to manage this and his disappointment with her reaction with also trying to be understanding and empathetic about how she just gave birth. And this was a big surprise. So they did some more tests on Brittany, and unfortunately, it was also revealed that Brittany had a heart condition known as VSD, ventricular septal defect. It was essentially a hole in her heart. Oh, my God. They couldn't see any of this back then? I'm surprised, although I remember that they could not tell my parents anything really about me in 1984. They had also rejected the amniocentesis, which would have told them that she had Down syndrome because they didn't think that they had anything to worry about. They were young. I don't think that there was a history of chromosomal disorders in their family. And also, I think, as you might remember from when we were going through our pregnancies, there's a risk of miscarriage with having an amnio, a very small risk, and they didn't think it was worth it. So they did not have any idea when this was going on. And they said about the hole in her heart about Brittany's heart is that she's way too little as a newborn to do the surgery at that point and that they hoped sometimes in those cases the hole closes up on its own. So they were saying we should wait as long as we can and either it closes up on its own or she gets strong enough that we can actually do open heart surgery, but we just keep monitoring it and if it gets to a point where it's medically necessary, we might have to do it before she's two years old. So this is a lot to find out all at once after you 
have had a child and you're immediately concerned about their well-being. And Lisa was not handling it well at all. For days, she refused to hold Brittany or care for her. Justin, who was about to turn four, also suffered. And of course, we're going to give Lisa a green of some understanding here because she's obviously postpartum. But some of this stuff is like, you have to separate your shit for your children, for a baby that was just born and just deserves to be loved. And also for your son, because he apparently made a welcome home mommy and Brittany banner. He made it with his grandparents and put it on their porch and was excited to come out and have his mother see it when she got home from the hospital. And instead she ripped it down and tore it up and threw it on the ground. What? Yeah. It's easier to not do anything than to do that. It's easier to just grit your teeth and say, oh, thank you, honey, and then move on with your life. So, of course, now Justin was terrified because this was such a strong reaction and he didn't understand it. And from a four-year-old's perspective, it was because she didn't like his art. If you think about it as a kid, you're like, oh, she hated what I did. I did that. I'm the one who caused that reaction. I just watched that Bluey episode last night. (laughs) Yeah. I think it was the Father's Day one or something where, like, they cover Bluey's art with Bingo's art. And it's, like, the biggest deal. And they think it's – everything's about – them. Of course. At that age, when you're a young child, a baby, you're very developmentally solipsistic. So now he's feeling like he did something wrong too. So this is really hard for Rob to navigate. Yeah. Trying to help his wife, trying to understand everything he can about his daughter who has a heart condition and Down syndrome and also trying to emotionally be there for his son who's really confused about what's going on and why everyone isn't happy. So sad. It was rough. When Brittany's Down syndrome was confirmed a couple days later, they called the home to let them know that it had been confirmed via test. And Lisa threw such a fit that she ran out of the house screaming at the top of her lungs. And Rob sincerely wondered if she was having a nervous breakdown. He was also worried like, what the neighbors were going to think because she was like screaming and ranting outside. And so he went to Lisa and calmed her down. And she said to him something that he would never forget for all of his living days. She said, well, there goes our perfect family. And at that point, he was like, no, you're the one who's ruining our perfect family. We still have a perfect family. Your attitude towards our daughter is ruining our perfect family. Oh, my God. That's so hard. It's just so hard because he wants to understand and be there for her. But there was just, it felt like rather than coming together and communicating well, there just ended up being this wall built between the two of them about it because he was losing respect for her and he was getting really disdainful about some of her suggestions. She would say things like, well, there's really great facilities that we can put Brittany in where she'll be taken care of, where people can be there for her around the clock. And he would just go, that's disgusting. Absolutely not. As long as I can live and breathe, I'm taking care of my child. And I think if you look at it from Lisa's perspective, obviously that's a despicable thing to say, but I feel like maybe she was trying to say, I'm overwhelmed. I'm a stay at home mom. I don't know if I'm prepared for this. I need help. How can you help me? How can we come together to figure out solutions that aren't so scary for me? Yeah, but she didn't know how. 
she didn't know how or she didn't word it that way. And the way she has been wording her attitude towards their child is understandably upsetting Rob. So I think that by all accounts later in life, Lisa ended up being a good mother to Brittany. There are some small things we'll talk about going forward, but it does seem like she snapped out of it at some point and really cared for and loved Brittany. I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt, even though it's very hard with these egregious statements, that it was just a young mother struggling to figure out how she was going to help her child. I mean, how old is she at this point? Like 24? Yeah. Like, that's so young, and you've got a four-year-old, and you just found out you had a daughter with special needs. She obviously has a hard time communicating anything because she always has fits since he's met her. So this all tracks, even though it's horrifying. Yeah, and the next few years did not bring any relief because they found out, actually, that Brittany needed the heart surgery much sooner than they had hoped. She was six months old when she had her first heart surgery. And then when Brittany was about 18 months or so, she had been doing great. She was walking. She was cruising. She was learning her first words. She was a really happy little girl. And then she started experiencing a series of strokes. What? Yeah, she was diagnosed with something called Moa Moa disease. It's an extremely rare disorder in which certain arteries in the brain are constricted. And one of the side effects are having these like debilitating strokes. And as a result of these strokes, I believe that she lost a lot of her ability to move. She was essentially paralyzed in all but her, I think, face, neck, and one of her arms. And also at this point, they were completely lost and didn't know what to do. When she was finally diagnosed at a University of Tennessee hospital, the doctor there essentially said, there's nothing you can do. You just take her home and love her as long as you can because I don't think she's going to live much longer. Andy, if you had to guess what one of my biggest personal wellness challenges would be given my hectic schedule, two little kiddos, podcasts, and my general night owl nature, what would it be? Not hanging out with me enough. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, that's number one. But what's my number two? Would it by any chance be proper sleep? Ding, 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 ding. And one of the most effective tools I've found in my personal journey is Magnesium Breakthrough. Did you know that over 75% of the population is magnesium deficient? And what most people don't know is that even if they're taking a magnesium supplement, they're still deficient because they're not getting all seven forms. Yes, that's right, seven. Magnesium Breakthrough is the ultimate way to give your body all seven forms in just one supplement. Yes. In addition to experiencing relaxed sleep, Magnesium Breakthrough also helps improve digestion, supports muscle recovery, and supports healthy bone density. And I really do feel it if I miss a dose or two because I'm also weightlifting. And there is definitely a difference in how I feel the next day after our particularly tough session if I do not take my Magnesium Breakthrough. Yeah, there is nothing like getting better sleep to help you feel grounded and relaxed during the day. For an exclusive offer for Love Murder listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder10 during checkout to save 10%. Again, that's magbreakthrough.com slash lovemurder and code lovemurder10. Thanks to Magnesium Breakthrough for supporting the show. 
Andy, sometimes when we do ads, actually most of the time when we do ads, I speak from personal experience and conviction. But in the case of this next sponsor, I also speak with my family's professional legacy. Yes, lovers, if you're playing the love murder bingo game, check one off for Jesse mentioning her dad is indeed a dentist. <laughs> my dad is a dentist, and that's why I'm so excited to tell you about today's sponsor, Biome, and their awesome Knobs toothpaste tablets. This is a totally new take on toothpaste. Knobs toothpaste was formulated by a dentist to provide a minimalistic toothpaste without sacrificing on efficacy. Just 13 ingredients and no BS. It's that simple. Get it, guys? Knobs, no BS. On top of that, most fluoride-free toothpaste do not include a remineralizing agent. Knobs is formulated with the safest remineralizing agent alternative to fluoride and super gentle polishing ingredients. Also, they really think differently about every part of the company. For example, there is no plastic tube. Everything comes in glass jars which are also very difficult to break. I have dropped mine so many times, Jesse, on my floor, <laughs> and it's never broken. And every time my mouth is just open, I'm so shocked. Plus, because Knobs isn't considered a liquid, no more having your toothpaste chucked out by TSA when you travel, which you know is huge for me. Or your toothpaste opening and exploding in your bag and ruining everything else in your toiletry bag. That too. They're incredible. In fact, when I first heard about them and started using them, I told my dad about them and he was like, I'm going to order a bunch for the office. And I was like, wait, wait till we get a love murder code. You're not ordering anything. <laughs> he did though, didn't he? He did. He absolutely did. And my dad loves, loves, loves them. Listeners can enjoy 15% off just like my dad's patients for your first one month supply of knobs. Go to betterbiome.com slash lovemurder. That's betterbiome.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder. Oh my God. And I have to say to Lisa and Rob's credit, they were both were on the same team here. They were like, absolutely not. We're not accepting that. So they went to the Mayo Clinic. They applied to get into this experimental surgery and it worked. But poor Brittany had to have essentially brain surgery. And they said that, I mean, she had stitches all over her head, this poor baby. She was, I think, 18, 20 months old. They said it looked like a baseball, like the stitching. So this is so, so difficult. And now they also know that she's not going to be able to walk or do a lot for herself at this point because of the strokes. This is going to be a child and then an adult that will require around-the-clock care for the rest of her life. So there's a lot of stress going on in this marriage. And Lisa ended up turning to the church as an outlet, which seems like a good outlet. That seems like there's a lot of things people can turn to. Many times in our stories, people are turning to booze and gambling and drugs, drugs, you know, so Church is not a bad outlet when you're going through something like this. She joined the choir at the Trinity United Methodist Church, which was a church that Rob's parents had actually been founding members of. So this is their family church. And this was great in theory, but soon Lisa was never home. It seemed like she would go to sing in the choir and then she'd go out to dinner with some of her friends from the church. And then she'd be rolling in at midnight. And he's like, hey, I got to get some sleep. And go to work tomorrow morning, like this seems like aggressive for being out all night after going to a choir practice. 
<laughs> Rob was fortunate enough to have both sets of grandparents nearby, and they were very helpful. It sounds like, unfortunately, at one point, Lisa's father did pass away, but her mother and his parents especially were very, very helpful because Lisa did need breaks. Of course she needed breaks. And Rob was working full time. So they needed the help. And thankfully, their parents were there to be with them. But when Lisa started kind of screwing off a little bit more, like he found out that she'd be going over to her friend Tammy's house and like hanging out at the pool. She was like staying out late after choir practice. He started thinking, we haven't really been a married couple in so long like feeling like a team, feeling romantic, which I totally understand from a feeling that you're just essentially in the business of keeping your children alive and you stop seeing each other as a romantic partner. You're more like business partners running a family. Or like partners in trying to wrangle crazy little miniature people. Yes, with like blessedly, like thanks to the powers that be, like my children are healthy, but... Still, sometimes I can get into spaces where I feel like we've just been like one-on-one tackling each of them all weekend. And then I don't sit down until like Sunday night. I'm like, oh, there you are. Hello, husband. (laughs) Rob's beginning to think, I really want this relationship to work out. And his parents have been married for years and years, decades at that point. He didn't really believe in getting divorced, but the relationship just wasn't good anymore. On Mother's Day 1993, however, Lisa was profiled in the local paper. So the choir director at Trinity Methodist, I think is where they were, was also a life and style editor by the name of Michael Frazier. So Michael and his wife, Tracy, had become very close with Lisa because of the choir stuff. They had also double dated with the Wedbees, so they all know each other. But it seems like Lisa's more friends with this couple than Rob really is. He's just like going along with it because it makes his wife happy. So Michael wrote a feature about Lisa. It was titled A Mother's Nightmare, A Mother's Dream. And it was essentially profiling her as this heroic, giving mother who single-handedly fought for Britney's treatments and care And there was just like a ton of pictures of her and Brittany. It didn't really mention Rob or the fact that the grandparents helped a lot or even their son, Justin, who, by the way, was amazing with Brittany. He loved his little sister so much. So Rob's like, okay, this is a ridiculous puff piece. But he was happy that Lisa was happy. She was going to every newsstand and buying a bunch of copies and giving them to everyone she knew. And she was very delighted about this article because it painted her in this almost saint-like fashion. So Rob's like, whatever. Did it even mention Rob? Not really. It was like they had like a family picture in one of the spots, but it definitely made it seem like it was just Lisa who was fighting for Britney. Lisa and Britney with working dad and random brother. Yes, yeah. So by early 1994, Rob thought maybe it was a good sign that Lisa was inquiring about going back to work for the family insurance agent part-time. I think she had some sort of aide or mother's helper to help with Brittany. Justin was in school at that point. They also had their parents close by to help. And she thought maybe it would be good for her to get back into the workforce. I think so too. Yeah, Rob wholeheartedly agreed. He loved the times that they were working together and felt like a team and they were all working at the insurance company together. And 
She said, well, just to get me started, can you bring home our personal file? Because it's a portfolio of every type of insurance. Because the Wedbys themselves had like the homeowners, the the car, the auto insurance, everything. She's like, our portfolio has like everything in it. And I could like get familiarized with at least all our policies as a jumping off point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, that's a great idea. <laughs> I will do that. So he brings home everything. And he sees that she's particularly interested in their life insurance <laughs> Oh my God. What? <laughs> what? Andy's, I jumped on you. I feel like you could have said life insurance policy on that one. <laughs> you did. You were chomping. You chomped it away from me. I chomped too hard. I didn't give you the moment to shine there. But Andy, was. it was on the tip of her tongue. It was on my face. Yeah. <laughs> life insurance policy was written on her face. And now Rob thought that was a little strange because she had never been licensed to sell life insurance, which is one of the trickier insurances to sell. As it should be. Yes. So he's like, why is she looking at that? And she was like, oh, actually, I'm thinking that I want to get relicensed to sell life insurance because you always said it's like one of the hardest parts and you need more professionals in the office who can handle life insurance. And he's like, okay, that's a great idea too. He's like, do you want to come into the office a few hours a week and learn on the job? Or would you like to take a course? Because there's lots of educational courses that you can take to work up to getting licensed. And she was like, well, let me think about it and I'll let you know. But then weeks went by and she had no interest, it seemed like, in going back to work or getting relicensed at all. And when he finally said push to shove, because he'd been bringing home books for her, he'd been talking about when she'd like to come in. She finally was like, I, I really sat with this and my priority has to be to our children. It can't be going back to work. I really have to put Brittany and Justin first. Rob was fine with this because that was their initial setup, their initial agreement when they had kids was that she was going to stay at home. So he didn't want to go back on that. But he also felt like she wasn't really prioritizing the kids. He said that there were several instances where he'd come home and Brittany's diaper hadn't been changed all day. Oh, poor baby. Yeah. And he was disgusted about that, of course. And Lisa would lie to him and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I changed it 45 minutes ago. And he'd be like, clearly she's crusted. It's not been, it wasn't changed 45 minutes ago. At one point he walked in on her disciplining their son, Justin, and allegedly saw her slap Justin. Allegedly, I do not know if this was confirmed. He is thinking, I don't really know if she's being the mom that I need her to be at this point. And it went from generally bad to suspect when Rob began to get reports that Lisa had been seen out and about with the choir director, writer of her fluff piece, organist and handbell enthusiast, Michael Frazier. So Rob's aunt also worked, I think she was a teacher. She worked at a school with Michael's wife. And Rob's aunt called and said that Michael's wife believed that Michael was having an affair, but she didn't know with whom. She had found some receipts to a hotel room. Receipts don't lie. <laughs> receipts don't lie. She believed that he was having an affair, even though he was denying it. And I guess that Lisa had said something really weird to Rob's aunt. They had been at a cookout and she had said, oh, if you ever see me in this neighborhood, which is, I think, where Michael and Tracy lived. I'm just over there doing some shopping. It's nothing else. And she's like, well, that's a weird thing to say. In case you see me walking out of Michael's house wearing red negligee. <laughs> uh, I'm just going shopping in my favorite negligee. So totally nothing to see there. Of course, 
Rob confronted Lisa about this rumor and she just started laughing. She was like, are you kidding me? Give me some credit here. If I was going to sleep with anyone who wasn't you, if I was going to have an affair, it would not be with Michael Frazier. Come on. And Rob kind of laughed too because Michael was an unlikely candidate. He's not a super duper sexy man, let's say. He was kind of like this tall, skinny beanpole. He chain smoked. He also had a tendency to come across as arrogant. The best description I can come across is imagine, okay, this is going to be a stretch, guys. Dave Matthews, like the singer of Dave Matthews Band, with a perm and serial killer glasses and then make him really, really skinny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what this guy looked like. And he had this sense of always being smarter than everybody in the room in kind of like a rude and arrogant way while he's like playing his little handbells. Yeah, but I... Man. <laughs> you guys, we really got to get on YouTube. He's a professional percussionist. <laughs> he's basically the same as your husband. <laughs> same. Yeah, that description really fits him. No, I'm just meant as a professional percussionist. I feel like though arrogance makes up for a lot that could be missing for is like confidence. Yeah. So honestly, because Rob is Mr. Ken Powerlifter, owns his own company. He seems like Mr. Jock Dude, king of the high school. And this guy would definitely be like in the AV club, maybe theater. She's essentially saying, hey, I'm the cheerleader, yo. Like, I wouldn't be with him. And he agreed. He was like, yeah, that would be such a weird pairing. I totally get that you guys are just friends. And Lisa even called Rob's aunt to thank her directly for telling her that there was rumors. And she was like, yeah, that's obviously not true. I really appreciate you telling Rob, looking out for us, make sure to tell people it's not true. And she called Tracy, Michael's wife. It said there's some scuttlebutt going around that Michael's having an affair. I don't know anything about that, but I know it's not with me. We're truly friends and I'm your friend too. So she did all this in front of Rob. He felt pretty good about it. And while he was pretty sure that she wasn't having an affair, he also did have to admit that at this point with everything that had happened and all of the fractures in their marriage, it really just wasn't working out. It was probably time to consider what it would look like to end this marriage. So he wasn't surprised in the least to find out that Lisa was consulting with a divorce attorney. Wow. Yep. So he found a check, like the whatever the copy of the check is, to a divorce attorney. And he asked her about it and she was very upfront. She was like, I don't know if this means that we're actually getting divorced. I just wanted to figure out legally what my rights are and what it would look like. And he was like, yeah, that makes sense. And she was like, actually, I'm supposed to go see my attorney over the next couple of days or something. You should come with me so we can both talk about what it's going to look like for us, what our options are. We'll go together. And so he was going to be coming from work. So he's going to have to meet her there. Now, people who are divorce attorneys know that it's very inappropriate. You would not have your clients soon to be ex-spouse at the meeting. They need to get their own attorney to protect their own interests. It just wouldn't be done this way. But of course, he's never been divorced. I don't even think they had divorced friends. So he just strolls up into her divorce attorney's office and everyone there is totally freaked out. And he has no idea why. He said it was like he came in and he was like wielding like a gun or a knife or something the way they were looking at him. And so then somebody came out and they're like, you have to leave or we're calling the police. And he's like, no, my wife told me to meet 
her here. And they're like, your wife doesn't want to see you, sir. You need to leave. So he's completely confused. And he had, in the confusion, he had left his keys like on the desk or whatever, the check-in desk. And so he has to come back in and they're like, you need to leave or we're calling the police. He's like, I'm just getting my keys. So he's totally confused. He goes home and she gets home later and she's like, I don't know what their problem was. I have no idea what that was about. I even told them that it was okay if you came in and they said no. So he doesn't know what's going on. He did not know why they were looking at him like that. And weird stuff keeps happening. There's been a couple of times that he's been at home just doing stuff around the house and the cops have showed up and said that they were calling about a domestic dispute when nothing was going on. One of those times, Lisa wasn't even home. So he's like, everything is going really weird. And then one day in mid-May of 1994, the cops were called, but this time for good reason. For some reason, according to Rob, Lisa got so angry that he had let Brittany go to his parents' house after church. So usually the kids did Sunday school and they went to church and then Lisa stayed after for choir practice. And I guess that Justin always went to his parents' house after church and sometimes Brittany did, but not all the time. And so that specific day, I think Brittany was supposed to come home with them, but she really wanted to go to his parents' house and go swimming with her brother. And so he's like, of course, if Brittany wants to go, she can go and it's cool with everybody. And he didn't ask Lisa. And for some reason, this really infuriated Lisa. So when they got home, they were still screaming and fighting about it. And she said, well, you know, I don't even want to talk to you. I'm going to just go do some laundry and I don't want to look at your face. And he said that he was like, okay, whatever, nothing new here. And he'd gathered some extra dirty laundry she hadn't brought down to the laundry room and he's bringing it down to the laundry room. And all of a sudden she has a shotgun pointed at him. What? But he knew from experience that there wasn't any shells in the shotgun because he did not keep his guns loaded. So he's like, this is ridiculous. But how does he know that she didn't load it? He was, I think, really reaching here, but he was pretty sure there wasn't a shell in there. So he, he doesn't think at this point that he's really scared for his life, but she's being aggressive enough. She's like, this is it. I'm not going to do this with you anymore. You've hit the last straw or whatever she said and ended up chasing him out of the home. So he ended up running half a mile to a Hardee's restaurant. Remember those Hardee's? Yeah, they still exist. Do they? Uh-huh. Yeah, so he got there and he had to basically beg some stranger to give him a quarter to use the payphone. And he was going to call his parents, but he was like, if I call my parents and tell them that she chased me out of the house with a shotgun, our marriage is like over. There's no repairing it. You can't walk it back with your parents to say my wife threatened me with a shotgun. So instead, he called her. He called home. And he was like, I'm at the Hardee's. I was going to call my parents. I don't want to tell them about this if there's any hope that we're going to fix this relationship, which they had also been in counseling at the church. So they'd been couples counseling. They seemed like they were kind of walking down all of their avenues of possibility. And so he's like, if you can calm down, will you just come get me and we can talk about this? And she said, yes. She went, she picked him up. But when they got back home, they started fighting again. And he found the shotgun and she was like, well, what are you going to do? You're going to shoot me with it? And he's like, no, that's your game. And then he went to open it to confirm that it was unloaded and there was a shell in it. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that she knows how to do that. Her last name was Outlaw. <laughs> so he's like, shit. While he's like dealing with this, she's watching. And all of a sudden the shell like falls to the ground and she dives on it. She's trying to get it away from him. So they start fighting over the shell, which he eventually got. And he realized she was trying to keep it away from him because it wasn't a brand that he bought, which means she bought the ammunition. Oh my God. Because I think he kept the ammunition locked away somewhere where even she couldn't get it. So she had gone out and bought 
these shells. Andy, I've told you and our listeners a lot about my nighttime routine, like a lot. But when it comes to maximum productivity and, of course, the very best possible love murder episodes for y'all, my morning routine is every bit as important. Absolutely. That old maxim of breakfast being the most important meal of the day is so true, but it's incredibly hard to find breakfasts that are good for you and convenient. Whether you've got a busy day ahead of you or you just want a quick and easy breakfast, Mosh's plant-powered protein bars are the perfect way to reinvent your morning ritual. With three different flavors, each plant-powered Mosh protein bar includes 12 grams of a blend of soy, pea, and pumpkin protein. Each bar is made with ingredients that support brain health like ashwagandha, lion's mane, collagen, and omega-3s. At only 170 calories, 1 gram of sugar, and 7 grams of fiber, Mosh plant-powered bars are the perfect way to start your day right. Your brain is your number one tool, which is why Mosh protein bars are mindfully formulated by some of the top neuroscientists and functional nutritionists. This is just the type of thing that I want in my bag all the time. Absolutely. I mean, it's great for when you're doing school drop-off. And also, I got to be totally honest with you, I work out of my home. And sometimes in order to get anything done, I have to just like hole up in my room with a three liter bottle of water and not leave it all day because I will see a husband or some children or somebody who needs something from me and get totally caught off track. So I just keep a box in my room and then I don't have to worry about it. Another really cool thing is Mosh was founded by Patrick Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver and is a mission-driven brain health and wellness company that donates a portion of all of its proceeds to support women's brain research through the Women's Alzheimer's Movement at Cleveland Clinic. Don't settle for a mediocre breakfast when you can nourish your body and mind with the fuel it needs to succeed. So whether you've got a busy day ahead of you or you just want a quick and easy breakfast, Mosh's plant-powered bars will keep your brain and body fit, fueled, and feeling good so you can start your day right. Head to moshlife.com lovemurder to save 20% off plus free shipping on your first six-count plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on your first six-count plant-based trial pack, which includes two of each mouth-watering flavor. M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash lovemurder. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. One of the hardest things in life is when you know what is good for you, but your brain just is getting in the way. Like you know what you should do and what you're supposed to be doing, but for some reason you just cannot make yourself do it. Therapy helps you figure out what's holding you back so that you can work for yourself rather than against yourself. Goodness, it can be so hard to overcome racing thoughts and self-doubt and questions. Everyone has so much going on constantly, and it just feels like the world just throws more and more noise our way. I certainly feel that sometimes when I'm having a hard time processing my day and moving forward so that I can focus on work or just focus and be completely present with my family. Finding space to really process, to learn positive coping skills is just so important. Absolutely. One of the important things to know about therapy is that it's not just for people who've experienced major trauma, although it definitely can help with that. It's really for anyone who wants space to process and help learning positive coping skills. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's online and designed to fit with your busy life. After filling out a brief questionnaire, you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And of course, if for any reason it's not a fit, 
You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LoveMurder today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash LoveMurder. So they had been like fighting. And so she's like, ow, you just broke my arm. And he's like, I didn't even touch you. Don't, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And she's like, my arm, you like pushed me or you hit me or something. And now my arm's broken. It's all your fault. He was like, I didn't touch you. Just like get out of my face. And they both like went their separate ways. But she had called the police and hung up several times during this exchange. Like she kept saying, I'm going to call 911. And he's like, do whatever. And eventually the police did come. And she told them, that he broke her arm and the responding officers looked at her and they were like, there's nothing wrong with your arm. She didn't even have like bruises or anything or marks on her body. He did not either. He's like, she threatened me with a gun. They're like, okay, well, what do you guys want to do about this? I think one of you should leave the home. But the kids were about to be dropped off from going swimming and neither of them wanted to leave the other parent alone with the children. And so the cops basically said, doesn't seem like anyone is actually physically injured. If we have to be called back to the house tonight, one of you is going to jail. And they just left. So that was how that ended up going down. And then the next day, she asked him to go to lunch with her. And when he met her, she had a brace on. And she said that she'd gone to the hospital and that it wasn't broken, but it was badly sprained. And he's like, you have it even on the wrong arm. Yesterday, you were complaining of me breaking the other arm. And she was like, well, I went to the hospital just so I have a record of what you did to me, which, by the way, there's x-rays and doctor's notes. <laughs> and they said that there was nothing wrong with her. So she must have just like bought one of those like braces at CVS and was wearing it. Yeah. And it was like for a specific arm. And she was like, ah, oh, this will do. So that did not stop her, even though the doctor said there was nothing wrong with her. From going to get an order of protection against Rob, though, according to Lisa's version of events, the fight had not been about letting Brittany go swimming. It had been about Rob attempting to rape her. The statement read, On May 15th, Rob let me know he felt my body belonged to him. I tried to fight him off and was bruised on my legs and my left arm was sprained, bruised, and swollen. Police responded, I got medical treatment for my arm on Monday morning. On May 15th, the police did respond to the several hang-up calls from their address. And other than an arguing couple, they found no marks, bruises, or other signs of physical abuse on Lisa or Rob. And once again, the medical records from St. Mary's, where Lisa sought medical treatment, showed that after x-rays and a thorough exam, the left arm looked perfectly normal. The ER doctor would later say, if I'd seen signs of abuse, it would have been in my report. Yeah. I feel like doctors are so meticulous with that. I think most of them are. I mean, there's still obviously huge occurrences where abuse can be swept under the rug, like in the Ruby Frankie case and some other scenarios. But with somebody going to the hospital with this type of injury and this type of story, I feel like they would have been very vigilant. Yes. Even when you don't have a story, if there's something that could be misconstrued as physical abuse or abuse from a partner, they usually ask you or set you aside from your partner if you're there with your partner. It's happened to me before. Oh my gosh. Every OBGYN appointment even though everything was fine, they were, I think, legally required to ask me how things were going with us and also to ask me if it was okay to have him in the room. Yeah. I feel like the medical system is doing the best they can with that. Mm -hmm. So on June 2nd, however, Lisa 
asked her attorney to amend the order to include social contact. So she is telling the judge, I still want the order of protection, but with social contact, meaning he can stay in the house and I can stay in the house. So it's very confusing that it's essentially saying he's on watch, like everyone be on alert about how he's treating me, but we can also coexist and stay in the same home together, which seems really dicey. Yeah. Why would you want that if you were? Well, that's basically what the judge said. The judge was like, well, based on this report, if he is attempting to rape you and injure you and cause you bodily harm, I do not think it's a good idea to continue to coexist in the same home. Yes. And Lisa was like, no, we have to figure out stuff for our kids, essentially, which I do understand it's hard to figure out when you have a child with special needs who requires around-the-clock care. That would seem like a special circumstance in which you have to put your shit aside. But still, it's like, I don't know, rent a house nearby or figure something out. These two people should not be living under the same roof at this point. If what she's saying is true. Yes. So Rob was pleased about this he signed the protective order he was just thinking at least i get to stay in my house while we figure out what the hell we're doing yeah afterwards lisa asked rob out to lunch again and she did tell him at this point look this whole thing has gotten way way out of control i am so sorry I do think I want to make it work. The idea of having to be a single parent and going forward without a teammate is really daunting. And I want to reconsider where we were standing with our relationship and actually try. He was stunned, but he that was ultimately what he had wanted as well. So he agreed to consider it. And that was around the time, only five days later, when he came home from a softball game ate some cold KFC and made sweet, sweet love to his hot blonde wife. After drifting off, as you may recall from the beginning, Rob was attacked by a knife-wielding intruder in his own bed. So after all of that long backstory, we are going to hop back into the Wedby's bedroom on the very worst day of Rob's life. So it's dark in the bedroom, and Rob has at this point been grappling with this sweaty, six-foot-tall man with a knife. His ear is mostly severed. I think it was, like, hanging off. He's sliced up all over his torso. His throat was nicked. He's fighting for his life. That was when the knife turned in his hand and almost severed an artery, I think, around his thumb. And while he was grappling, all he could think about was Lisa and Brittany. And that was when he saw... The woman in the doorway who looked like an avenging angel holding an aluminum bat come to kick the ass of his intruder. And he's just flooded with relief at that point and screaming at Lisa to turn on the lights so he can see who this guy is. Call 911. Get to another phone that might be working. He's screaming and screaming at her. And she just said calmly in a normal voice, come on, Rob, let's just get out of here. Just let him go. And he's like, what? In his brain. And then all of a sudden, his attacker yelled, you've got to do it. Do it now. And in that second, Rob realized that he had been double-crossed, that when she came in with that bat, it wasn't to fight off the intruder. It was for him because he recognized the voice of his attacker. It was the voice of the church's organist, choir director, and handbell enthusiast. 
Michael Frazier. Why'd she say Rob then? So I think Rob had the upper hand. He was on top of the attacker. This is so weird. So basically what I think happened, well, we'll get into what happened, but I think in in Lisa's mind in that moment, why she wasn't moving was because she expected to come in and have basically Michael finishing the job, killing Rob. And she was going to like come in with a bat and do whatever she needed to do to finish it. And instead, she finds out that her husband is besting the killer. He's on top of Michael. He's winning the fight. And then she pauses in that doorway for so long because she doesn't know what the hell to do because it's clear now that he's winning. She doesn't think she can kill Rob with a baseball bat. He's going to survive this. So now her head has to be spinning. How the hell do I get out of this with him not thinking I set this up? I'd say, how do I get out of this and get Michael out of this situation? And she's like, let's just get out of here and let him go. And he's like, are you kidding me? Oh my God, poor Rob. Rob is, all of the wheels are spinning now. He's recognized his voice. He's realized his wife has a baseball bat and it wasn't for helping him. Yeah, she double-crossed him. She double-crossed him. Everything is true. He's literally in this moment being like, aunt so-and-so was right. (laughs) He's like, all of these crazy thoughts are just flooding through him at moment. And he gets this like huge burst of anger and he literally like picks Michael up and throws him across the room. So sick. And then he like runs out of the bedroom and his like Lisa kind of backs up because she's scared of him now. And while she's like taken aback for a second, he grabs the bat out of her hand. And he keeps running down the hallway to their kitchen because their kitchen's attached to their garage. And he wants to get out. And while he's doing that, Michael has recovered. And Michael's thundering down the hall after him. He said that he could hear their, like, family portraits were hung up on the wall. And he's running so fast that the family portraits were falling off the wall and shattering. Oh, my God. So he is covered in blood. He's been cut up all over. And he gets into the garage and the garage door is shut. Who cares? Back into it. Yeah, he opens up the garage door. And when he does that, he has one of those garages that if you open the door, the floodlights come on. And so Michael with the knife comes almost all the way into the garage. And he realizes now that Rob can recognize him. Because with the lights going on in the garage, when somebody has pantyhose pulled over their face, For the most part, you can recognize their features. He also recognized the voice already, but I don't think Michael probably realized that he knew that. So it's like the light was what made him realize that he knew who he was. Was it the curls? Could you see the curls? He said it was his beady eyes. Okay. (laughs) It was his beady eyes staring out from under the pantyhose mask. Like a little, like a sloth. There's also one more thing. He was wearing a distinctive... Shirt. It was a Phantom of the Opera shirt. Which is apparently. Yes. It was Michael's favorite musical. So 90s. Like you loved Phantom of the Opera. Michael, of course you loved it. Of course he did. And he had worn that shirt around. How are you going to wear a shirt that someone can recognize you by when you're going to murder someone? Like what is wrong? So he like stops short and then Rob is like, I'm going to get you, motherfucker. And he takes the bat. He like swings at him. He's going to crack his head open. 
but he, remember his hand was cut down to the bone. So with all of the blood and the sweat, it just slipped right out of his hands. Oh no, okay. But he was still so scary that Michael just slammed the door shut and locked the door. (laughs) Oh, and he's like, "Uh uh-uh, no, of his own house. Of his own house. So now he's locked out of his own house and he was so angry and full of adrenaline that he kicked the door, but he had bare feet. So he's like, oh. I mean, the good news though, guys, what I was trying to get to at the beginning of the story is that this is an uncommon love murder story because even though this is the worst day of Rob's life, it is not the last day of Rob's life. Rob survives. So this is a love murder survivor story, which we do not get very often. No, I think we've had like three. Yeah. (laughs) In three years. So I am pleased to give you this one. I I thought for our anniversary, I'd let Nathaniel have one where the husband lives. So that's your your anniversary gift, babe. Happy anniversary, Nathaniel. (laughs) 10 years, baby. So yeah, so he's like in so much pain. He is literally, he was asleep with boxers and a t-shirt on. So his shirt is shredded. He's cut up. He is trying to figure out where Michael's going to come out of his house. Is he staying in the house? Like all the doors are locked. And he goes, he gets the baseball bat again. And he goes to his neighbor's house and starts like hitting the neighbor's drain pipes with a baseball bat, clanging as loud as he can, being like, I've been attacked. There's an intruder in my house. Call 911. We're under attack. And luckily, it was a pretty cool June night and the neighbors had been sleeping with their window open to get some breeze. So they heard him. So they're like, what the hell? So they immediately call 911. And when the cops arrived on the scene, Rob was still in a state of high adrenaline and shock and he was pissed as hell. So they come, they roll up to this guy who is looking like he's been through nine circles of hell. I mean, he is just covered with blood from his head to his toes, shirt shredded, his body, he needs stitches in multiple places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, sir, we have to get you to the hospital right now. They're calling the paramedics. And he's like, no, let's find that motherfucker. Like, interview me right now. Get all the information. It was Michael Frazier. My wife's in on it. Go get him. Meanwhile, she had come out and with the neighbor. Also, where's Brittany? Brittany was asleep. So Brittany was sleeping through this. Brittany's totally okay. Okay. Maybe. We'll talk about that later. And the neighbor said that Lisa came out and she's like, we were just attacked. And for some reason, Rob thinks I had something to do with it, which is so ridiculous. And so she's like, Rob, come on. Without anything wrong with her. Well, she had some blood on her because I think that she had tried to like calm Rob down or she might have touched Michael. So there was a little blood on her red negligee. But she was like, We were both attacked. I don't know what he's talking about. And they could not find Michael at that point. It looks like he had run off on foot. And then finally, Rob called his parents to come stay with Brittany. I think one of them was staying at the house with Justin. And then one of his parents was going to come to the house to stay with Brittany. And he was going to the hospital. And then they were, of course, going to take Lisa in to talk to her about what happened. Because he's like, it's my wife's having an affair. It was a setup. It was her affair partner. And they said it was really weird because by the time all of this, like the dust had settled, she was taking a nap at a neighbor's house. Like she doesn't know whether her daughter's safe. She doesn't know what's going on with her husband, but she was taking a nap at the neighbor's house. And they're like, this seems very strange. A woman who had just been attacked, who was worried about her child, whose husband had been 
very bodily injured would not be just chilling out. Yeah, like you wouldn't go with him to the hospital. Yes. So immediately they're like, okay, she absolutely 100% was in on this. And her interview went very poorly. She could not really explain what had happened. She did admit that it was Michael Frazier. She tried to sidestep the fact that they were having an affair. She tried to throw blame over at Rob, saying Rob was abusive. There was a record of his abuse. And that Michael was only in the home to protect her. (sighs) Randomly, her church friend, choir person. Yes. So the attacker was indeed Michael Frazier, who had been obsessed with Lisa since they had first met seven years earlier. In those seven years, Michael had been married not once, but twice. However, he had never gotten over his beautiful blonde angel, as he referred to her. The thing was that Michael never thought that Lisa would return his affection in a million years. He thought she was so far out of his league. So instead, he became her friend and creepily spent as much time with her as possible. Until one day, only a week or so after his glowing Mother's Day piece came out about her, he was at the church late at night and she showed up and she was like, Michael, I have something to tell you, a secret that's been weighing on my heart. I think I'm developing feelings for you. And he would say later that this was the best day of his life. This was something he never thought was going to happen to him. There's like some subtle digs about... My primary source today is a book actually by Rob with a co-writer. It's called Rude Awakening, which is a great title. Oh my God, so good. (laughs) Rude Awakening by Cherie Ann Martinez and John Robert Wedby. That's his full name. He goes by Rob. But there's some shade thrown in this book talking about how they got together. Essentially, he said to her that he'd been in love with her for years and that To be this close to her for all of these years while knowing that he could never actually be with her had been almost painful. So the two began talking on the phone for hours. There's phone bills that verify this. Phone bills don't lie either. Yep. (laughs) The bills and the receipts. So a couple of months after she admitted she had feelings for him, they consummated their affair. And this is where like the shade happens. He basically says that Michael couldn't finish. (laughs) Wait, how does he have this data? I don't know. And he's like, the other thing he didn't know was that she was still sleeping with her husband the entire time. He wrote this book like some like 18 years later, I think, too. It's like he's still like, screw you, man. Yeah. So they start having a sexual affair when Michael's wife started getting suspicious because they were meeting up at hotels and began to ask questions. Michael actually rented an apartment for the two of them to have sex in. It was a little lascivious, lecherous love nest, if you will. And... While they're carrying on this affair, she is telling Michael that Rob is this horrible, abusive brute who beats and rapes her, that he abused the kids, that he threw Brittany across a room into a wall at some point, which, first of all, Justin was eight years old when this all went down, and he said very clearly his father had never abused him. The children did not appear to be abused in any way. And Brittany was so medically fragile that she could possibly have not survived something like that, like the attack that Lisa was describing. 
And she is telling all of this to Michael, who is horrified. She said that she wanted to divorce Rob because they were planning on divorcing their spouses and marrying each other, but that he had told her that the only way that she was getting out of the marriage was in a body bag. The drama. She, of course, told her divorce attorney, too, that he was abusive, which is why they all freaked out when he came into the office. So Michael did what any red-blooded married church choir director would do for (laughs) their also married lover. He made payphone calls to the police pretending to have heard Rob beating Lisa and saying he was a concerned neighbor. But apparently Michael and Lisa had gotten their communication wrong because Lisa was supposed to be at the house when the police came and say that he had been abusing her. And instead... He called too early and Lisa wasn't even home when Rob was allegedly beating Lisa. Facepalm. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff. Even the the attorney later on is like, okay, if you were so worried about Lisa, why did you drive in the opposite direction to make these phone calls from a payphone? Why didn't you just intervene in the abuse or go to the closest payphone to their house? Call the police and wait to see if Lisa's okay. Why would you drive to the farthest away payphone and call the police if you're so worried? Not bright, not bright. Mm-hmm. So when Lisa decided that this was it, finally, she was really, really worried that Rob was going to do her in, even though she had asked if they could stay in the same house only days earlier. She instructed Michael to put on a pair of rubber gloves that he bought that day and hide in her basement closet with a knife for something like six hours. But don't forget your Phantom of the Opera shirt. (laughs) Until she summoned him up like a phantom of the closet to come kill her husband. So this idiot was in Rob's house, crouching in his basement with rubber gloves and a knife for hours while his girlfriend was upstairs eating fried chicken and banging her husband. Yeah, he's probably jerking off. I think he was big smoker. He was having a very hard time not smoking. So the reason why Rob had a weird sense that there was cigarette smoke in his home was because he melted down at one point, was like, I just need a cigarette and had like one cigarette like peeking out of the closet. Through the pantyhose. (laughs) But it seems like Lisa had not picked a burly enough hitman lover because Rob had managed to overpower him. All of that handbell and organ playing had not helped him in hand-to-hand combat, sadly. It was not handbell-to-handbell combat. So like I said, Lisa totally flubbed her police interview, and she tried to say that he was just in her home as a friend to protect her because her husband was so abusive. And they're like, yes, it totally makes sense that somebody would be hiding in your closet with rubber gloves on just in case some abuse rang out. And then that person would be standing over your sleeping, vulnerable husband who is doing absolutely nothing with a knife in a dark bedroom that screams defending somebody who is currently being abused. Totally. Yeah. So they arrested her right away. Like I said, Michael had run off on foot And I guess he like walked and ran eight miles home, which was very hard for him because he had the smoker's lung. And when he got there, the cops were waiting to pick him up. And apparently he tried to throw out some lame line like, oh, did my wife call you guys on me again? Ha ha ha. And they're like, we know what you did, sir. We're just sitting here waiting for you to show up. 
They're like, it took you a unreasonably long time to run eight miles. It's been days. We've been here for days, sir. So his poor wife had been out of town. They had picked it, obviously, on a night that his wife would have been out of town and not realized that he was coming home covered in blood. Yeah. But she would later say that she found an empty bottle of champagne in their trash when she got home. So the police theorized that the lovers had been prematurely toasting their murder plot. Or Michael had been just guzzling some champagne for liquid courage, which would have definitely worn off after the seven hours in the closet. Well, miraculously, four-year-old Brittany had slept through the whole event. However, later on, Rob and his parents would question just how miraculous it truly was. They had a tremendous amount of difficulty waking Brittany up the following morning. Oh, no. Rob also later discovered a previously full bottle of liquid Valium that they had given her to calm her down around the times of her surgeries that had once been full in his last looking. It was now basically empty. Rob's parents and eight-year-old Justin also reported that when she had dropped Justin off earlier that day, Brittany had wanted to sleep over at her grandparents as well. And Justin had wanted his sister to stay with him because she was getting upset that she couldn't come. And Justin was like, leave my sister alone. Let her stay with me. I want Brittany to stay over too. And it had been a scene with her saying, absolutely not. Brittany's coming home with me. And Justin hammering on the door saying, no, leave Brittany with me and crying as his mom basically drove away while he was still trying to get his sister out of the car. So they were wondering why it was so important to have Brittany in the house. Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, I mean, on the very worst of thoughts, there's some speculation that she was going to set it up in a way to kill two birds with one stone. Oh, my God. Sick. Yeah, that maybe she was, like, drugged to the nines either to have an overdose or so that she wouldn't realize that she was getting killed. We don't know because it didn't go down that way. Thank goodness. But that's just speculation. It was just a weird occurrence because there's also entirely the possibility that she just didn't want Brittany to wake up during the attack. Did Rob write on that in the book? Yes. Leading up to Michael's trial, Rob hired his own PI and also worked with the DA's investigator. The DA's investigator had to research everything, including all of Lisa's allegations of abuse and the paper trail that she had tried to create. And that detective found them to be total bullshit. The investigator went and talked to all the doctors, talked to the responding police officers. They found out where those calls were coming from and connected them to Michael Frazier. So they were building a case that obviously the two of them were trying to make a history of domestic abuse violations and concerns. So it looked obvious. So if something had gone wrong, I guess she could have said that she killed him in self-defense maybe. I don't really know what their plan was beyond murdering him. While the investigator for the DA was looking up all of this information, she also discovered that Lisa had had an affair with at least one other man and had hit on another and they were flirting, but the other man stopped the relationship when he found out that she was married. So Michael Frazier was not her first infidelity rodeo. Now Rob's PI discovered that while Lisa and Michael were out on bail waiting for their respective trials, they had violated a court order and they started sneaking around together. Now, they're not supposed to be seeing each other because they're not supposed to be getting their story straight. And Rob had gotten suspicious because, well, she's being not held. She was in an apartment. She was free on bail, but he had to pay for her apartment. So he's paying for the apartment she's living in 
separate from him, even though she tried to have him murdered. Why? I don't understand why he would have to do that. I don't know if it was because she hadn't worked in so long, so he was legally responsible for her while they were getting divorced. Doesn't that kind of go out the window after you've hired someone to try to kill him? I'd be like, bitch, get your parents to pay. Move yeah. in with your parents. I'm not getting you an apartment. But the landlord of that apartment reached out to him and was like, I don't want to remind you again that there's no smoking here. The apartment below was getting like cigarette butts thrown on their terrace or something. Rude. And he was like, I know Lisa doesn't smoke and that asshole does. So he hired a private eye to watch the apartment and they were like doing weird sneaky things like Michael Fraser would like come out first and like hide in her car, like get in the back seat and like hide. And then she would come out like 15 minutes later and like pretend like she was alone and drive away with him in the car. <laughs> but yeah, it seems likely that Lisa was trying to keep her lover close as his trial was first. And she wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to flip on her to get a better deal. Or when he did testify that he would not say anything that was going to be damaging to her case. And it seemed like the tactic worked because Michael did not turn on Lisa. He incredibly stuck to his story that he was only there to protect her and that even though he was standing in Rob's bedroom holding a knife in his hands over his head that also slashed Rob's ear basically off, somehow... Michael had just in that moment decided that he wasn't going to kill anyone, that he had changed his mind, and that he was trying to leave when Rob woke up and attacked him, and that the only reason Rob got injured in this attack was because he was grappling for the knife and Rob had injured himself in the attack. Oh, got it. Okay. They were saying that, well, obviously the man was sleeping. If he had really wanted to kill him, he could have just killed him, obviously. Like, he had clearly changed his mind. And the only reason his injuries weren't worse was because Michael hadn't tried to kill him. It was just Jesus told him not to. Yeah. And they're like, uh, it's kind of just because he's bad at fighting and killing. I can't believe that's their defense. That's their defense. Like, yo, he could have if he wanted to. He clearly had changed his mind. Oh, my God. They're also saying that there was no premeditation. He was only there to defend and protect Lisa, who he believed was getting abused. So it's normal for him to hide in closets? It's normal for him to hide in closets with a pantyhose mask and rubber gloves that he bought much earlier in the day. It's shocking. Shocking. <gasps> oh, my God. I feel so bad for him. After he's made several calls to the authorities to lay the groundwork to frame Rob as being abusive. This all screams premeditation to me. Of course, the prosecution argued that the illicit lovers wanted Rob out of the picture, but they also wanted to get their greedy little paws on his $1.5 million life insurance policy, which they knew about because of the paperwork. And they also wanted to inherit the nice house and Rob's other assets, of course. I am sure that the prosecution thought that this was a slam dunk case, but in the end, it wasn't. I think that it's because Rob came off as very strong and confident. Okay. He was very stoic. He did not read as a victim, even though what happened to him, he was absolutely a victim. Meanwhile, Michael was this sniveling little weasel, weasel who had so clearly been taken in by Lisa that the jury would later say that they felt bad for Michael. Oh, my God. They thought that he had been thoroughly duped by this user, Lisa, and he still was. 
So instead of finding him guilty of attempted murder in the first degree, they found him guilty of attempted manslaughter. And the maximum sentence on that is only four years. Wow. They were also, you're not supposed to ask what the punishment is. And so they were asking the bailiff, like how much time he would get with every different sentence or conviction, rather charge. And they're not supposed to know that. They're supposed to just go by the letter of law, what they believed it was done. And for some reason, which is beyond me, they did not believe there was premeditation, which just seems ridiculous. I think that they knew there was, but they just felt bad for him. I guess also the prosecutor was a big guy who seemed a little menacing when he was crossing him. And so it read as like this little weaselly man is getting bullied. It was just a disaster all around. But the judge did sentence him to the maximum, which was four years, only four years. So did Lisa wait for her one true love while Michael was on the inside for four years? No, of course not. She moved to North Carolina and married another guy after her divorce from Rob was finalized in November of 1995. Meanwhile, Rob and his parents were left caring for the children 100% of the time. Now, directly after the arrest, Lisa had been banned from contacting her children for good reason, right? While all the court stuff was pending. But once that restriction was lifted, it seemed like no attempts had been made to be a mother at all. You don't have to pay alimony to your partner if they try to murder you, right? I don't think so. I think he had to pay a little alimony, but she got married, remarried so fast that I don't think he did. I don't know if she was responsible for paying him child support. I do not know how that all went down, but she basically abdicated being a parent altogether. Rob wanted desperately to get more justice than he had gotten in Michael's case when his estranged wife would finally go on trial. He was eager to see her confronted directly with her lies and schemes because he wanted some closure. Yep. So he was stunned when the DA told him that they were pursuing a deal, a plea deal for Lisa. The prosecution just did not believe they had a strong enough case to convict because she could say, I didn't know what Michael's intentions were. There was no evidence that she knew what he'd been doing. He was the one making the phone calls. He was the one who attacked Rob. It also, I think that her attorney had made a motion to say that she was mentally distressed or emotionally in a psychological break when she was having this affair. They just did not think they were going to get a conviction. So they encouraged Rob to accept a plea. Lisa would plead guilty to solicitation to commit second degree murder for a four year sentence, but only one of those years would be in jail. Three would be probation. Unreal. Rob's attorney also urged him to take the deal. It was a really bad time for Rob. Lisa had slandered his name in the media she and her attorney had told reporters that he'd abused her and wife abuser had been volleyed around with his name, giving him a bad reputation in the community, even though they could prove that that wasn't true. So his attorney's like, dude, think about your kids. Think about your family. Think about what you've been through in your own sanity. If you go through this whole trial and it's in the media all over the place again, and then she walks, you're going to feel like shit. Yeah. Take the done deal that's done quietly and move on with your life. So he did. I mean, he really wrestled with this. He said that he did not sleep for three nights, like really wrestling with this decision. He decided to accept the plea deal, but he did say later that it was a choice that he would deeply regret for the rest of his life. On June 26, 1996, 
Lisa now Weatherly, Lisa Outlaw Wedby Weatherly, was finally sentenced to her pre-agreed sentence of one year in prison and three on probation. It was just over two years since the night Lisa summoned her phantom lover from the bowels of their house and told him to kill her husband while he slept. And for that, she got one year. Unreal. The real kick in the balls for Rob was that she was allowed to take an Alfred plea. So that means that technically she's not even copying to any guilt. She's saying, I'm maintaining my innocence, but I'm recognizing that the court has enough evidence to convict me. And even her statement, because she was allowed to say a statement at her sentencing, it was still like such a cop out. She said, I deeply regret that this incident occurred and I accept my share of the responsibility for it. I am forever grateful that no one was hurt seriously and horrified by the thought that such harm could have easily occurred. I should have not let Michael Frazier into our house that evening. I did not want anyone to be hurt. I acted out of fear, hopelessness, depression, and what I have learned to be a dependent personality disorder, such that I've always relied upon others to make decisions for me. Wow. No responsibility. Bravo. Bravo. Where's the Oscar? You should be a real housewife. Like when they turn it around, like, well, I'm so sorry mom that wasn't you wrong. were offended at what I said. <laughs> Literally. Yep. Though Lisa did not really do any hard time at all, I don't think she has gotten off completely scot-free because she never got to have a relationship with her children or her grandchildren at all. Rob reported that she has not contacted her children. She has not tried to contact her children. She has not seen them. She has not heard from them since the 1990s. So sad, but probably better for the kids. That's why I think it's better for the kids. It appears that she's still married. When the American Monster show came out. So guys, you can see Rob in Who the Bleep Did I Marry and American Monster. I'll put the details of those episodes in the show notes. But when American Monster aired, I was like looking up information on where she is now. And somebody on Reddit published a link to her Facebook profile page and people were ripping her apart. They were messaging her husband being like, do you know what kind of murderer your wife is? Shame on you. They were like, she ended up taking up down her Facebook Fully doxed, profile yeah. page. Yeah, she was like fully doxxed. I was like, yo, okay. So I feel like she has to live with the knowledge of what she's done. Obviously, strangers on the internet scaring her and not having a relationship with her children, which no matter who you are, I think you must be haunted in some ways yes, by that. Of course. Absolutely. Michael Frazier likely never got over Lisa, the woman he was prepared to kill for, who married another man while he was in prison. He never remarried. He moved in with his parents after his prison term, and he worked as a music director for a different church until he died at the age of 51 in 2013. Churches are good at moving people around, you know? <laughs> yes. This is Rich. Lisa wrote online on a memorial tribute, you will always be my soulmate. See you in heaven. She's also married. That's rude to everyone involved in this. So rude. Rob wrote the book I used as my primary source. I love the cover. I saw it a little when you held it up. Yes, the cover art is amazing. He said he wrote it to help other victims, also to process his own trauma. And because at the time that this was all going down, the media was saying whatever they wanted about him and other crime shows were making money, but he wasn't making any money or profit from his own story. And so he said that he wanted to write this book so that he could tell his story his own way. And also 
any proceeds that go to this book is it goes into Britney's care because Britney is still alive. She's a happy young woman who loves Barney and loves her grandparents and loves her brother. But, you know, as she gets older, she does require even more care. And he continues to provide all of that love. There's a really cute picture of him and Brittany that I'm going to put on the Instagram. So he's like, I just wanted to put this out into the world and hopefully get something back. So if you want to support Rob, of course, buy a copy of this book. We'll put a link in the show notes. Rob still works in his family's insurance company. He's now running it with his son, Justin. Great. Which is cute. It's really cute. Justin has had children, so he's a dad himself. And... Becoming a grandfather has been a great joy in Rob's life. He is also passionate about victim advocacy. Cherie Ann Martinez closed their book by saying, quote, Rob's hope is that his story will inspire others who have been victims of violent crime and betrayal. He is confident that it is possible to live again, achieve again, and maybe even trust again. Yay, bravo. Yay, Rob. True hero. In conclusion, that man just goes back to trust your gut. There were so many red flags along the way in that relationship. And every single time Rob persevered through, but sometimes you shouldn't keep persevering. You should just listen to the red flags. We'll see the signs, follow your gut. Absolutely. And another red flag is if you ever find yourself hiding in the basement of your lover wearing rubber gloves with a <laughs> pantyhose over your face, maybe cutting a little hole for a cigarette while you wait down there for 25 hours, it's time to reevaluate what's going on. Yeah, you'd think he'd have enough time in that that time he was sitting in the closet to really think about his actions. Yes. Time out. You're in time out, phantom of the closet. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. So yeah, you're not sitting in your lover's closet for hours with rubber gloves sitting on your hands. And then you get your ass kicked by the supposed murder victim. Yikes. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye. 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 